Hey there, and welcome to Watering Seeds, a podcast ministry of Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church in Asheville, North Carolina, where we seek to discuss and apply our most recent sermon from Sunday. This time, we're discussing Pastor Jim Curtis's sermon from Esther chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 4, The Wrong Thing at the Right Time. This is Wilson Goins, pastoral intern here at the church with our assistant pastor, Jim. How are you today, Jim? Doing great, Wilson. <clears throat> if uh, if I wanted to listen to that sermon, where do you think I could find it? Yes, Pastor Jim. Well, you could go and access it from covenantreform.net backslash sermons, or you can search for us on sermonaudio.com at Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church, Asheville. Funny you should ask that, Pastor Jim. <clears throat> I like that it's a backslash, just so they know don't forward slash it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I need to start that, incorporating that. It's very mind. specific. Yes, well, uh, it, it is good to be here, Wilson. Thanks for being here. Thank you for your time and uh, discussing this uh, sermon on Esther, uh, latter half of chapter one. How are you today? I'm sir? doing well. It's great to be on the podcast. It's my first time. Yeah, it's your I'm, first I'm, one. I'm a podcast rookie. So well, you're doing great so far. Uh, you, you just have to watch out. Some of our listeners are pretty persnickety. So uh, yes. when they when they start coming in with their feedback, it can be a little touch and go. Yes, okay? yes. I will look forward to those comments. So anyway, Pastor Jim, we on uh, Sunday, as you exhorted us and preached to us, you spoke of the sovereignty of Mm -hmm. God Mm -hmm. in Esther. So that was sort of the main focus of your sermon, that Mm -hmm. even in this crazy situation in the book of Esther, where uh, pitiful King Xerxes tries to gain unearned respect through uh, poor legislation and this Mm -hmm. declaration, um, we're exhorted to trust that God's hand is at work. Mm-hmm. So speaking of this sovereignty, you said that it was not enough to simply say that God is sovereign and now go live your life or let's pray and end the sermon there. But there's much more than that to look into in the book of Esther. There's much more there. Uh, could you explain that a bit to us, Pastor Jim? Yeah, so uh, I certainly want us to say we trust in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, right? I think I feel like, I mean, we're, we're talking about kings and governments and stuff in the book of Esther. So I feel like the, uh, the, the most common time period that I hear sort of a platitude, sort of a hollow ringing, oh, Jesus is still on the throne, is around election time. Right? Like, oh, your candidate lost. Well, Jesus is still on the throne. Uh, and, and what I really wanted to communicate, and I'm not sure that I did it necessarily well, but what I wanted to communicate in that part of the sermon was, it's not enough to just say, okay, well, I trust in the sovereignty of God. It's sort of in this way that I think is a misuse of that biblical truth. Just saying it and and sort of trying to dismiss the difficulty that's going on around us. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Uh, another Bible verse I think that's used that way, for example, is Romans 8.28. For God works all things uh, uh, to the good of those who love him, right? I think a lot of people can sort of just, oh— your life's hard. Well, God's good and he's being good to you. So trust in that. And they sort of walk away. It's not really super encouraging. Um, and that's what I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to avoid some, some bare proclamation that, yeah, your life is difficult, Wilson. Maybe, uh, uh, you might be going through the mess of trying to figure out how to be, uh, as I said in the sermon, both a faithful Christian and a good citizen or a good, employee or a good student or a good wherever you may be, right? 
you might be living in the tension of that. And it's not enough to just sort of, uh, I think, sort of beat yourself with this, oh, well, God is sovereign, so you just need to keep trusting in him. I think rather what we should do is say, yes, God is sovereign, so I'm going to sit down and I'm really going to try and examine what is God up to. I'm going to pray through this. So the difference there is, oh, I'm in a bad situation. Oh, God's sovereign, whatever. I'm just going to keep plugging along. Is different than I'm in a bad situation. I trust that God is in control. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take the time, effort, and energy by faith to pray about my situation, to critically examine the situation, and see what I could or should not do in that instance. And I'm going to filter everything back through the Bible, everything back through what God has told me to answer that question. How can I be a good Christian, a faithful Christian, and a good citizen, student, employee, whatever it is in that situation, wherever the tension is coming from? Does that make sense? It does make sense. So all all I really want us to avoid is, is sort of a hollow, a cheap platitude that sort of gets us out of doing the right thing in the, the, uh, in that moment right. or, or seeks to sort of dissolve the tension immediately. It's okay to live in that tension. We're going to see coming up in Esther, Esther is not going to try and get out of the tension. In fact, she gets thrown right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to, it's going to provide a big problem, um, which is sort of the big problem of the book, um, is that she's, uh, she's going to get scared. Uh, and she's going to be fearful of approaching King Xerxes uh, uh, when this huge issue surrounding her people comes up, how do you deal with that? How do, how do we live in a tension like that? How do we deal with stuff like that when the stakes are pretty high? Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was aiming for there. Right. Absolutely. That's very good. Pastor Jim, thank you for that. So our, uh, our second question this morning is about the contrast between Jesus's message and the message of King Xerxes, the, Mm. the two messages that those kings send out yeah. to their uh, subjects. So we have Xerxes to all his kingdom, which is much smaller by comparison to Jesus's kingdom, which yeah. is what? Can yeah. you tell us that? <clears throat> yeah, so there is an, an interesting thing underneath the surface there. And, and if we'd had about five or six more minutes, I think I, I would have brought this up. So I'm glad that you asked this question. There's an interesting mirror going on uh, in in this uh, latter half of chapter one, where you have a king with this massive kingdom, over 127 provinces, reaching from Southeast Asia all the way to Ethiopia and Africa, uh, who sends out this proclamation in the native tongue of all of the provinces, such that everyone in his empire has access to it in a language they understand. And that proclamation is fundamentally negative. Right, that proclamation is Vashti is no longer queen because she refused to come at the command of King Ahasuerus. Right, so his proclamation necessarily casts out; it alienates his bride, if I can put it that way. Christ, on the other hand, when he comes and sets up his kingdom, he issues a proclamation, if I can say it in this way, in every tongue of every tribe of every nation on the earth, right? Uh, The refrain of the New Testament is go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? So he sends a message, is sending a message about his bride, uh, who uh, it's fundamentally uh, uh, an inclusive message. 
or a, a fundamentally a positive message, which is is inclusive, meaning that he wants his bride, he is inviting his bride from all corners of the earth to come to him. And I think it, this is super interesting in in that it shows the foolishness of King Xerxes, which we've been talking about the last two sermons, in that uh, earthly kings necessarily have to rule in that way. They have to rule, they have to make the hard judgment decisions of who's in and who's out. And they almost always get the who's in, who's out wrong. Whereas King Jesus has to do the same thing. Who's in the kingdom and who's not? Who's in the church and who's not? But he always gets it right. Mm. Right? All of his people, all of the faithful believers will be in his kingdom. And all of his enemies will not be in his kingdom. Xerxes gets it wrong. Right? Mm. Instead of including his bride, he kicks her out. Mm. He makes her his enemy. But we are the enemy in our sin. And Jesus takes us from an enemy to a bride. So you see the reversal. That's why I like the idea of a mirror here. There's a reversal going on. And I think what that teaches us is that the gospel message, if King Xerxes is foolish, and he is, uh, and he's impotent, and he is, uh, if he's really kind of a moron, mm-hmm. and he is, at least that's how this, the story sets him up, then if Jesus does the opposite, sort of a basic logic thing, if he does the opposite of King Xerxes, then he's not foolish, he's wise, mm-hmm. right? If he's not impotent, he's all-powerful, right? If he's not a moron, he's glorious. He's incredibly smart, and he's, um, I mean, we can start extolling all these attributes of Christ in that way. So I, I hope that we see that the book of Esther is sort of teaching the positivity of Christ, his message, and his kingdom, and his kingship through the negativity uh, and the foolishness of Xerxes and his rulership and his kingdom. And we're going to continue right. to see that contrast and that mirror throughout the book. Yeah, and there's, I think there's so much there even in the way that these two kings lead in terms of, you know, Xerxes has to make this huge display of power because he uh, is not leading his wife well. But in contrast, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd whose sheep hear his voice. And I think even in that, there's so much for husbands and wives isn't there in the way that we lead what what could you say pastor jim to to husbands wanting to know how to lead their wives like jesus christ yeah that's a good question um we're going to see the marriage thing come up over and over and over again throughout the book of esther and i think we're going to see different aspects to it each and every time so uh in, in in the first sermon in the book of esther right we saw um that that xerxes objectifies his wife um, and, and it's not just him. He invites others to objectify his wife. Uh, and so uh, the, sort of the basic principle there is um, if you want a bad marriage, if you want a marriage that's going to result in this huge conflict that we see it results in, uh, if you want to be embarrassed as a husband, treat your wife that way. Right. Um, it, it, on the other hand, if you want uh, to um, have a good marriage, insofar as it depends upon you, if you want to, to aim for a good marriage, then you need to include your wife and consider her perspective. I also want to be careful. I mean, it's, um, it's good and right and true to sort of uh, uh, um, hit out at, at Xerxes here. But it's, it's also teaching a broader principle than husband to wife. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to isolate the husband to wife in this way because that's what we see the text do. 
But the text gives us a larger principle at play here, and that is that two spouses that are treating each other as problems and not people. This was the the most recent sermon, uh, mm-hmm. wrong thing at the right time. Uh, if if we start viewing people as problems instead of people, if 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 your husband isn't doing what you want him to do, and so you're trying to fix him, if your wife uh, um, is upsetting you and you're coming in and sort of dropping the hammer, like we see King Xerxes do, if we're viewing each other as problems and not people, there's no reconciliation that's ultimately going to happen, because at that point it's a project. You know, if you if you see somebody as a problem, they become a project. If you see someone as a person, suddenly communication becomes very different. Yeah. Rather than commanding, rather than sort of putting your fist into the table, right, um, and sort of trying to rule with an iron fist, suddenly it becomes less about me and what I want and more about us and what we need. So I hope that that, yeah. that, that sort of comes through in those two principles that I've, been, I've drawn so far. You know, um, uh, we're not objects, we're people. Right. right? Um, I think our society is more prone to objectify women. I think mm-hmm. that's true. Uh, I think that's that's been generally true for human history uh, uh, as you look through art and that sort of stuff and even pagan worship. Um, but on the other hand, I do think it is true uh, that a husband can become a means to an end, right? Mm-hmm. He, uh, the way that he works in a, in a home can sort of become a, um, uh, I think, if I could put it this way, what we're going to see is we're going to see that Esther doesn't really have a whole lot of um, opportunity right. to express herself before the marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to sort of try and deal with the tension and the mess in that. And as we do that, what we're going to see is I think a lot of people try and explain that away. And I'm not satisfied with this explanation by saying, well, look at what what she's given. I mean, the opportunity for her to be a queen, that's incredible. But what that explanation misses, among other things, is chapter one. Mm. Xerxes isn't a king that anyone wants to be married to, mm. right? Right. A guy who objectifies his wife, a guy who can't control his appetite, a guy who gets r- enraged when his wife does something that he doesn't want her to do uh, or doesn't do something he wants her to do. Like, no, I don't think any of us wants to be in a marriage with a spouse like that. Right. So I, I think we're actually going to see, uh, uh, you know, if, if we view Xerxes as a means to an end of, well, Esther will have a better life going from Jewish orphan to queen, that might be true in a worldly sense, but I don't think many women, I don't think many men are going to be happy with a marriage in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're going to pick up a lot of these things in marriage throughout the book because um, uh, particularly our next text in, in chapter two shows an incredibly tragic view of the exploitation of women. Mm. And I think that that's going to really, I think, set the stage for our understanding of uh, uh, that mess that mm. we've talked about in this last sermon, particularly the mess of marriage. Marriage is a messy thing. Mm. You're newlywed. I am right? newlywed, yes. Uh, have you found it to be a little messy so far? It can be yeah. sometimes, um, yes. And you're going to realize, you know, those messes can get bigger and smaller and more conflict-laden and less conflict-laden over time, right? Mm. Uh, and I, I think that, that the general principles we're drawing from the book can absolutely be applied to marriage because the marriage piece is always in the background. Mm. Does that answer your question? On, on it does. That? It does. Sort of I also rambly, just want to just delve into it a little bit more, put you on the spot here. Okay. How can um, wives in a similar situation to Vashti, uh, how can they uh, per se 
still submit to their husbands, even if their husband is not a gentle leader as Christ, if their husband is in the wrong as Xerxes, how does a godly Christian woman navigate that relationship? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, again, we <clears throat> we didn't see why Vashti refused. Right. Um, uh, you know, uh, some people take the view, for example, that what Xerxes was actually trying to command her to do was show up in front of all the princes of Persia in just her royal crown, if you catch my meaning, right? Nothing else. Um, and, and that would have been incredibly undignified and dishonoring. And so if that was the command from King Xerxes, I don't know that the text really gives us enough to say that definitively, but if that was the case, then I think her refusal is righteous. I think it was morally acceptable for her to say, absolutely not. Because her husband was commanding her, um, so maybe asking in our context, asking her to do something immoral, mm. and that's not okay. Um, if that's not what he was asking, <clears throat> if he was uh, asking something you know less scandalous than that, what what we can glean from the text is whatever it was he was specifically asking was morally corrupt. Because he was not viewing his wife as a person. He was objectifying her, right? You go back uh, to the verse where it explains uh, uh, that uh, he, uh, that she was very pretty and, and pleasant to look at, right? That was, that's the explanation uh, that, that is given. Um, so uh, verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused, um, right before that, verse 11, uh, uh, Queen Vashti was to be brought before the king in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at, right? Um, but she refuses to come at that command. So when you look at that, whatever it is, uh, uh, Xerxes' command is not a loving thing. Right. What he's asking for is not a loving thing. So to your question, how can, uh, and I'm going to answer it maybe more generally, but how can uh, one spouse uh, uh be in a situation like this where they're asked to do something where in a marriage something is broken down where the other one is is asking something morally corrupt of the other. I think I think uh, and this is going to come as no surprise to anybody because of how direct of a communicator I've been told I am. <laughs> but I think communication is really the problem here. I really do. Mm-hmm. Xer- uh, Xerxes doesn't go to his wife and say, "Hey, you are fabulously gorgeous. The dress you are wearing, it makes you look stunning." And I want you to know how much I love you. And I want other people to know how much I love you by going and showing you to other people on my arm saying, look at us. Aren't we incredible? Mm. That's a total, like, I don't even think that's morally exactly right. right, But that's a totally different. There's a contrast between what Xerxes does and what we're told to do as husbands in Proverbs, which is honor your wife, you know, publicly. That doesn't mean to parade her around as Xerxes tries to command Vashti to come in front of everyone. Yeah, there's there's no moral problem here with Vashti going, being beautiful, first of all. Right. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Uh, Otherwise, lock Madeline up, okay? Um, But uh, (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) uh, she might kill me for that. but uh, um, but but go to like for example uh, a wedding day right I mean we, we, when on your wedding day mm-hmm. doors open right you see your wife in her white gown mm-hmm. and you're thinking to yourself yeah right nobody else is wearing white nobody else is wearing a, a a wedding dress like that obviously right right so it's not wrong it's not wrong for Queen Vashti to be beautiful and for King Xerxes to want other people to see the beauty of his wife. 
to honor her. Right. But that's not what he was doing, right? Yeah. That's not always what he was doing. So how can a spouse, this is a long setup to answer your question, how can a spouse uh, uh, who is asked to do something morally wrong address that? I think one, it's got to start with, hey, you asked me to do this and I'm not going to and here's why. Uh, I, I don't think that it was morally right. I don't think it was X, Y, and Z. I think, you know, the scriptures teach us A, B, and C, you know, and going on and on and on. And then say, and the way you asked me and what you asked me to do hurt me. And I know that that may not have been your intention to hurt me, but you did. And, uh, and so suddenly I think we're all of a sudden back in the gospel of Matthew, mm-hmm. uh, which we're going to see. And we're in Matthew 18. Right where if I if I ask my wife to do something morally corrupt, I have sinned against her, mm-hmm. and it's her responsibility in Christ to come and tell me that. Sure, right. Um, same thing. If my wife asks me to do something morally corrupt, right? Um, hey, go uh, ninety miles an hour down two forty without a seatbelt on, right? All right, babe, I'm not going to do that. Here's why I'm not going to do that. Right? She would never ask me to do that, but you get the idea, right? <clears throat> as silly as the example may be. Um, so I think it's got to start with uh, proper or um, direct communication and a proper understanding of the scriptures and of the moral framework. I think where most of the time I have personally seen it then begin to break down is that the other spouse gets defensive. Hmm. And so uh, uh, let me go back to the husband and wife. You asked how a wife could submit to her husband if her husband asked to do something wrong. She communicates that. Let me now talk to the husband. Mm-hmm. Husband, don't get defensive. Listen to your wife. Right. I think uh, the the issue um, that I particularly see is that that communication is not met well mm. on the other side. I think we see an extreme example of that by King Xerxes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he becomes enraged. OK. If you are being enraged by your spouse, let's have a conversation. Yeah, something's wrong. Right. Um, uh, as I said in the sermon, your spouse is your greatest asset. Madeline is my greatest asset mm. uh, in in not just ministry, right, but in everything. Um, uh, if 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 our view of our spouse doesn't start there, mm-hmm. doesn't start with look how incredible she is. Right in the good way, not mm-hmm. in the I want to show her beauty off right. and show how manly I am, but look how incredible she is. Look at all these things that she does well. She's amazing. Go back to the Proverbs, mm-hmm. right, that you were talking about a second, a second ago. If that's not our initial view, like then something else is 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 very wrong, and that's not Xerxes' view. And what does that tell us? That something was already wrong in Xerxes' head. And what was that? Xerxes' view of women. That's what we're going to see throughout the Book of Esther. Xerxes does not respect women. Mm-hmm. Um, Xerxes does not respect uh, 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 women as people because why? He's driven by his appetite. Mm. And so we need to ask that question. It may not be our appetite. It may be something else. But as husbands and wives, if that's our view of our spouse, we have got to stop and ask why. Where did it go wrong? What can we do to begin to pray for our spouse, pray for our attitude toward our spouse, and 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 really evaluate how uh, our spouse is an asset to us. Mm. Then we have to have a hard conversation of, you know, if your spouse messes up, we've got to learn how to communicate better. Mm. A lot of times it's it's an issue of communication. That's just my view. That's what I've seen in a lot of uh, uh, instances of marriage. Mm. So 
I don't, again, I'm not entirely sure if that directly answers your question, but I think, I think that that's at least a, 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 maybe two of the initial steps that I think spouses should take. Absolutely. Right? Be open to correction by your spouse, mm. um, according to the scriptures. Uh, we should always take each other back to the scriptures. But then secondly, ensure that your view of your spouse while you communicate is one of love and uh, one which um, views the other one very positively, right? Mm. Um, maybe maybe the spouse asking the morally corrupt thing just needs to be reminded of the scriptures. And you're a huge asset in reminding them of that, right? Mm. I mean, that's an incredible thing. Um, <clears throat> maybe uh, Maybe your spouse is sinning, and so they need you. They need you to call them out. Um, but to do so in such a way as to make them defensive, if you do it to hurt them, mm-hmm. that's not accomplishing the goal of calling somebody out. Right. right? What's the goal of, of calling somebody out? What's the goal of church discipline? What's the goal of, of confronting somebody's sin, Wilson? Repentance. Repentance and reconciliation. That's exactly mm. right. So that's the thing that we should be aiming for all the time. Mm. Absolutely, Pastor Jim. Well, uh, just two more questions here. Let's do it. Um, okay, so you talked about the hastiness of King Xerxes in making this declaration. It's something that probably would have um, blown over in mm-hmm. a moment. But mm-hmm. then they send out this message to everyone that all these um, that all these wives are going to rebel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it would have blown over, um, but he makes himself look foolish again. And so this reminds me, Pastor Jim... Uh, of another proverb, as we're talking about the Proverbs and wisdom and folly. Uh, So Proverbs chapter 29, verse 20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. So my question, Pastor Jim, and probably what our listeners are asking as well, is how do we as Christians Hmm. navigate the situations and all these many decisions that we have to make in a non-hasty manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need we need to adopt a more long-term view of everything. Mm. Um, I think uh, uh, I, you know I, t- I told somebody recently, <clears throat> for example, at thirty, the age thirty is not as old as I thought it was. Mm. Um, I thought once I hit thirty, you know, I was on the downslope. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, over the hill. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. and um, and that's not the case. Uh, uh, and, and I'm realizing, you know, I, when you're the little kid and you're looking at me you're like, wow, 30 years old, that's incredible. Um, that's not a long-term view, right? That's not a long-term view of life. Um, right. You know, if I, if I keep ministering, and I hope to, uh, uh, well into retirement, I will minister longer than I've already been alive mm. uh, from this moment, right? I will minister over 31 years into the future. And so... You know, if uh, if we consider tiny little minute things, right, in the grand scheme of things, what are we talking about, right? I I said in my sermon, for example, you know, we need to we need to ask the question more often. In ten years, is this going to matter? Mm, absolutely. Are you even going to remember it? One of my favorite things. I, I'm curious if you noticed this as uh, uh, as a newlywed. I'm sure. Tons of people have come up to you and told you marriage advice, stuff like that, right? Right, right. Um, in your conversations, have you ever uh, uh, seen or heard even your parents, um, oh, we had this huge fight this one time. Honey, do you remember what that was about? What were we fighting about? We ruined a, com- we ruined a date 
right? Or we ruined a trip or, or that vacation was terrible and we don't even remember what it was about. Right. You ever heard that? I have heard that. Yeah, yeah. It happens all the time. Okay. Um, that's because in part, uh, because, uh, I don't think we have a long-term view in the moment. And this is the deal, right? Um, this is, uh, 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 verse, the end of verse 12 at Vashti's refusal, the King became enraged and his anger burned within him, right? The greatest enemy to patience is anger, mm. is rage. Because you think in that moment there is nothing more important in this world than whatever right. it is that just ticked you off, right? Mm. Patience's, patience's greatest enemy has got to be anger. And, and I think the biggest piece of advice I've received most recently that illustrates this is about disciplining children, hmm. how you should not discipline children out of anger. Right. Uh, and I, you know, <clears throat> I sort of conceptually agreed to that. And Charlotte's, you know, beginning the tenter, temper tantrum stage, right? She's definitely more of a toddler than she was before. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got this thing now where she just puts her forehead straight on the ground and cries into the carpet um, because, you know, for some reason we won't let her s- stick her finger in an outlet, right? Um, how dare we? Uh, and, and, uh, you know, we, everybody's been there. Uh, every parent's been there, right? So, but in that moment, anger can well up inside me of Charlotte. How do you not trust me yet? Hmm. Right. Right. Uh, how on earth, I mean, you, you, you reach for me, you reach for your, your mama, you reach for us, you want to snuggle us, you want to laugh with us, you want us to hold you. And then when we we know best, right? So that you see how like all of a sudden it's like expecting way too much of a one-year-old. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where the anger becomes a problem, right? That's where anger suddenly cuts the patience down, right? Um, I don't remember when it was that I didn't want to stick my finger in an outlet. I don't even know if I ever did, right? Um, and, you know, you blink your eyes 30 years later. That's not something that I'm going to have to repeat to Charlotte. Right. right. So how do we be less hasty? I think we adopt a longer term view. Mm. I think we, we need to ask that question more often. Uh, uh, is this going to matter in a year, in five years, in 10 years? Mm. Is it at all? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes right. it will. And if it does, if you think it will matter in the long term, then you don't have to address it right now, hmm. right? Necessarily. Sure. You can take your time to address those things. Um, the other thing I'll say is usually when you're hasty, you're either anxious or angry, right? One mm-hmm. of the two or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't lead to great decision-making, mm. right? Um, uh, uh, one thing that I learned in the Army, obviously they're training us for high-stress environments, right? Right. Uh, uh, and the biggest thing that they are trying to do, uh, we would go days, like full days running the same five minute exercise over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And then a two minute lunch and then over and over and over and over and over again. And suddenly it's 8 PM and you've done, you've only done that one exercise from 7 AM to 8 PM. And you're just like, why are we still doing this? Right. Why are we still doing this? And then the next morning, you know what we did? The same exercise. Right. And, the next morning, you'd think, oh, well, you had sleep, you went home, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you forgot. But because you did it so many times the day before, your muscle memory kicked in, right? If you adopt a longer-term view, 
your muscle memory kicks in. Mm. Your muscle memory kicks in. Your conflict muscle memory, conflict resolution muscle memory can kick in. Right. Uh, King Xerxes is is ruled over by his appetite. And so when he doesn't get what he wants, what happens? He's enraged. Mm. He has no muscle memory of self-control. Mm-hmm. He has no exercise of self-control at all. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's pretty classic kingly issue, right? Mm. We have got to build the muscle memory of self-control. And I think we do that by adopting, in part, by adopting that long-term view. Right, absolutely. There's almost, uh, this is kind of reminding me of the book of Ecclesiastes in terms of, you know, the preacher at the end of his life, you know, uh, Solomon, if I might say Solomon, I believe Solomon's the author of Ecclesiastes. He looks back at his life and he's this king who's had everything. And, and Xerxes, you know, similarly has this power, um, probably not in the array of, of Solomon, but Xerxes would do well to see what matters. You yep. know, he's operating in the yep. here and now when the preacher in Ecclesiastes is living life, uh, is talking about living life in light of death. You know, there's all these avenues to peruse, but what really matters is fear God and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter. So I think that would speak to our listeners in terms of making hasty decisions is if we put things in perspective of eternity. Yeah, let me add one quick thing too. Sure. Since you brought it up. I think the other issue that we see Xerxes face is that he surrounds himself, what I call the royal committee in my sermon. He surrounds himself with fools. Um, and, uh, and it was a foolish thing to do because the people he surrounded himself with were his greatest enemies. Hmm. And, um, you know, you know, that, that, uh, more general proverb, not a biblical proverb, um, but keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Right. Like maybe he followed that, but his enemies were playing off of his weaknesses. Like I said, Mimukan, right. Uh, you know, brings up rebellion right after he had to put down a couple of rebellions and his army is not at full strength anymore. And so what does his mind go to? Oh, no, 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 no. I can't do this again. I can't do this again. I can't do this again, right? Hmm. So, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if Memu Khan thought his advice was good. I don't know if Memu Khan was manipulating him. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Right? Memu Khan's definitely a selfish person, like the rest of the committee, like the king, right? They're sort of all taking that example. Um, so uh, 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 I say all that to say <clears throat> another aspect is surround yourself with wise people. Hmm. That's another uh, uh, safety net and another way in which we can combat hastiness. Absolutely. And if I could add, uh, uh, work toward your spouse being one of those people, mm. right? Mm. That's when, again, your spouse is your greatest asset. Right? Mm. I run stuff by my wife all the time. And mm. she helps talk me off a ledge. She helps me realize something's maybe more serious than it is and everything in between, right? Mm. Um, it is a huge, huge thing uh, to, to be able to rely on somebody like that. Absolutely. All right. One more question. One more. Pastor Jim. So this is a big question. Here we go. How do Christians still respect leaders, uh, human institutions, governors, emperors, Mm -hmm. even when they are not good rulers? Yeah. It's a hard one. Um, uh, But I think you got to put it through, and maybe I do this too often, but I think you got to put it through a filter, right? And the first step of that filter is... uh, it's uh, uh, that person is a human being made in the image of God mm-hmm. and <clears throat> the image of God because of who God is, is worthy of respect, right? 
the basis of love your neighbor as yourself coming as a command from God is God's placing of his image upon all of humanity. Not just, you know, it's not like you became a Christian. It's the moment of your baptism. Suddenly the image of God was given to you, right? It is already yours. Mm. So that, I think that's step one uh, is, is ensuring, okay, I don't like this person, but even if I don't like them, they are made in God's image. And out of love and respect for God, I need to love and respect his creation. Absolutely. I think the second thing that that just should drive us to uh, is uh, a holy longing for that person to submit themselves to Christ, to reject their foolishness, repent of their sin, and mm-hmm. submit to, to King Jesus. Right. And so that, I think, is what uh, should drive our prayers for these people. Mm. So that's the third thing, is we then need to pray. Mm. And I think that prayer should come from uh, a desire that they would come to know Christ, like I just said. But it also also should come from a desire to follow God's command. And God commands us, uh, all over the scriptures, but particularly in the New Testament, to pray for our leaders, mm. right? Absolutely. Um, uh, and to honor the emperor, mm-hmm. right, uh, as yeah. Peter says. So <clears throat> I think uh, uh, once we're driven to that prayer, once we actually pray for people, right, um, once we pray for these these politicians who have different policies than us and that sort of thing, we can pray, Lord, save them. But we can also pray simultaneously, Lord, remove them from office because of their foolishness. Right. And that prayer is not an indictment upon them as a person by itself. We can quickly turn it into that. Mm-hmm. Right. And we do that, I think, by being hasty and being enraged because somebody disagrees with us. Right. But if we insert the respect and we insert the holy desire and longing for them to be saved, I think that that prayer can work. Um, and I think that could be one of the biggest ways we could both honor God as the the authority and ruler and power who's put them in authority and rule and power by appealing to him because of their foolish decisions, Lord, remove them from office, but save their soul, bring them into your kingdom, show them their folly, uh, because without the grace of God, I'm just like them, right? That's, uh, um, you know, apart from... God's grace, uh, we too could fall into that. That's Galatians 6, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Well, thank you for answering all these questions. Pastor. Absolutely. Really Thoroughly enjoyed it. it. Great job. First podcast, thank Wilson. You. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it with you, Pastor Jim. All right, brother. Until next time, okay? All right. All right.